been reading through the book of Psalms lately and uh, came across a psalm that caught my attention uh, not too long ago. And so I thought I would talk about it a little bit this evening. So let's turn to the 44th Psalm. The 44th Psalm. If I, if I were to uh, ask you to list your top favorite psalms, I, I don't know that this would be on the many people's list. Although it's an uh, especially interesting psalm, I think. It uh, has some unique features to it or points of view to it. And it's well worth our time to think a little bit about this evening. And so what I'm going to do is just work through the psalm, almost just regular Bible study sort of approach. And then toward the end of the, our time tonight, we'll draw some lessons out from the 44th Psalm. The introductory material, sometimes called the psalm title, says, For the choir director, a maskil of the sons of Korah. Now there's a lot of information there that we're not quite sure what is being referred to. A maskil of the sons of Korah, for example. Does that mean that it, this psalm was written by the sons of Korah? Does it mean this psalm came from the collection of the sons of Korah. Don't really know for sure, do we? The sons of Korah may have been descendants of the man Korah that we read about in Numbers chapter 26, who led a rebellion against Moses. If that's the case, these would have not followed in his rebellion and now have been assigned, as we see from other places, to serve in the temple. Some served as, as gatekeepers and others as singers. A maskil is a technical term of uncertain meaning. And so you'll see those words in these psalm titles from time to time. There are several of them uh, in the New American Standard Bible. They're more or less transliterated straight from Hebrew into English. Literally, this particular word means to make prudent or maybe to give wisdom or something like that. But exactly how that applies to this psalm and some of the other psalms that are described in this way, again, is a little bit hard to tell. Just exactly who the author was individually, if it was somehow produced by the sons of Korah, which son of Korah was the, the specific author of this psalm? Again, that's a little bit difficult to determine. And the date of the psalm is a little difficult to determine as well. One idea, which may be a good one, is one of the kings, who is the chief representative of the nation, both singular and plural pronouns are used in the psalm. You are my king, for example, in verse 4. Through you we will push back our adversaries. And so it may very well be that maybe one of the kings or one of the leaders in Israel is the author of the psalm. As he prepares to go into battle, and then reflects upon the battle. And so we're just going to go stanza by stanza in this psalm, at least at the beginning, and talk about the content of each of those stanzas. And as I said a moment ago, we'll draw out some observations toward the end. It consists of five stanzas, at least in the New American Standard Bible. In the first stanza, the author reflects upon the fact that God had given the people victories in the past. This psalm gets off to a great start. <laughs> it's, it's just a wonderful start. And so let's read the first three verses. O God, we have heard with our ears, 
Our fathers have told us the work you did in their days, in the days of old. You with your hand drove out the nations. And so you might reflect back upon the conquest of the land of Canaan, how God brought the people in and fought their battles for them and enabled them to drive the nations out. And so and that, this is a great attribution, isn't it? it? You by your hand drove out the nations. Then you planted them, that is, you planted our fathers. Our fathers have told us about this. You drove the enemy out, and then you planted the fathers in the land of Canaan. Uh, then he goes on and in verse 2, You afflicted the peoples, then you spread them abroad. That is, you dispersed the fathers, the forefathers of Israel, that founding generation that came into the land of Canaan. You spread them throughout the, uh, throughout the uh, land as you gave them tribes to live in. For by their own sword they did not possess the land, and their own arm did not save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your presence, for you favored them. And so again, just think about that conquest of the land as the people go into the land. It's God who's giving them the land. And the author recognizes that. It wasn't by their own might. It wasn't by their own uh, military acumen. It was God who is leading them. It is God who is fighting for them. Think, for example, of uh, the city of Jericho and the walls of Jericho falling. Think about the Israelites coming up out of Egypt and the experience at the Red Sea. Uh, think about uh, the defeat of Amalek as uh, they uh, go through the Red Sea, get beyond on the other side of the Red Sea. Think about the period of the judges, Deborah and Gideon and Samson. All those times, it's, it's God's power. It's not their own power, it's God's power, it's God's might. It's His strong right hand and right arm that gives them the victory. And the, the author, if he's the king, the king, he, he acknowledges that. He recognizes that. And he gives God the credit for it and the honor and the glory for it. And it continues to go well. Verse 4, as he anticipates the coming battle. Now, you are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. And so the God who gave Israel victories in the past, he appeals to that God to give him a victory. And so you are the God of the fathers, and you've been able to, or you've enabled them to go into the land and, and conquer the land, but you're my God as well. And so I'm asking you to do for me the same thing that you did for our fathers. And so again, he's not, he's not uh, calling upon his own strength or his own power, his own might. He's relied upon God for the strength to win the battle. You're my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you, we will push back our adversaries. Through your name, we will trample down those who rise up against us. I will not trust in my bow, nor will my sword save me. But you've saved us from our adversaries, and you put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted all day long, and we will give thanks to your name forever. <laughs> That's a strong statement, isn't it? We're boasting in God. Not again, not in our superior weaponry, not in our superior military strategy. We're boasting in the power of our God, and we're confident that he'll give us the victory. A couple of other passages suggest similar ideas. The 20th Psalm, verse 6 now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. He will answer Him from His holy heaven with the saving strength of His right hand. 
Now, some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood upright. Save, O Lord, may the king answer us in the day we call. Now, some, some trust in their chariots and some trust in their horses. We, that's not what we trust in. We trust in the Lord. And so that's the sentiment, same idea that's expressed over in the 44th Psalm. Look at the 33rd Psalm. Again, very similar idea in verse 16. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him and those who hope for his loving kindness to deliver their soul from death. And so again, you can see it's not, it's not our might. It's not human ability. It's the Lord who provides the strength, the skill, the opportunity to succeed. And so that's an idea that recurs in the book of Psalms. And we find it right here in the 44th Psalm. He simply is saying that the past informs the present. What God has done in the past is what I appeal to God to do in the present. And that's a great, you know, that's really a good approach, isn't it? And we we take that approach in our prayers. What you have done in healing people in the past, that's what we appeal to you today to, to do for us today. And those kinds of things. And so, again, the psalm gets off to a great start. But then in the next stanza, there's a surprise. What we might expect if we were reading through this and hadn't looked ahead, which I think some of you are doing, that's okay. But what we might expect is a great psalm of victory. You know, God has delivered our fathers in the past, and I'm calling on Him to deliver me just as He's done for our fathers. And He did, and we went out and we won. We defeated our enemies, and we're victorious. Praise, praise God for His, for His might. But that's not what we find. In fact, what the psalmist says is, God has rejected us. And this is another strong statement. So let's begin reading in verse 9, and we'll just read through it, not too quickly. I just want you to be impressed with just how strong a statement this is. Again, we might expect a song of victory, but that's not what we have. Verse 9, Yet you've rejected us and brought us to dishonor, and do not go out with our armies. You cause us to turn back from the adversary, and those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You give us as sheep to be eaten and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people cheaply and have not profited by their sale. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and derision to those around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my dishonor is before me and my humiliation has overwhelmed me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. That's not a song of victory, is it? You've rejected us. We're humiliated in front of our enemies. They're laughing at us. They're making fun of us. And and how, how can this be? How can things turn out this way? Now, it's interesting. We, we come across these kinds of situations before in the Old Testament. Can you think of any occasion where God did not go with His people into the battle and they suffered a, an ignominious defeat? 
Well, first one that comes to my mind is AI. And so uh, at AI, you remember, they've won the battle of Jericho, Israel has, and now they're, they're off to fight against AI. And it's a much smaller city. They need a smaller army. And so they go up against AI and they're defeated. How, what, what happened? Well, we're told in Joshua chapter 7, verses 10 through 12, there's, there's sin in the camp. I did not go with you to fight for you because, because there's sin in Israel. And so you remember what happened when they fought against Jericho. Achan saw some of the plunder there that they weren't supposed to take. It was all supposed to be devoted to God. He gets the first fruits, right? And so the first fruits of the conquest of Israel goes to God. But Achan takes some of this for himself. It's unknown to the people, but God knows it. And so God did not go out with them to the battle because of the sin that was in the camp. And they suffer just a humiliating defeat. You know, they turn tail and run in front of their, their adversaries. Another occasion is after listening to the ten spies, you remember, God tells them, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, one year for every day that these spies went into the land. And after all of that, there, were, there was a group that said, okay, we're ready to go now. And Moses said, Don't, no, no, not, not now. Or they go anyway, and of course they're... They're repulsed. But see, these came about because of sin. There was sin in the camp. There was rebellion against God. And so God was not with them. Things like this are said, for example, in other places like Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, we find, uh, beginning in verse 8, this is a long prayer on the part of Daniel. He says, Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings and our princes and our fathers, because we've sinned against you. Verse 11, Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which was written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words which he had spoken against us and against our rulers, who ruled over us to bring on us great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. And so, and so open shame is attached to us. We've been defeated. We've been humiliated before our enemies. But again, it's because of the sin in Israel. And so you can see that uh, verse 8, open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings and our princes and our fathers, because we have sinned. Verse 11, indeed all Israel has sinned. That's why this shame is upon them. Well, all this was predicted by Moses. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, this long passage that has to do with the blessings that would come upon Israel if they obeyed and the curses that would come upon them if they disobeyed. Verse 15 says, It shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe, all, to observe to do all His commandments and His statutes which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you. Look at verse 20. The Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, rebuke, and all you undertake to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly on account of the, your evil deeds because you've forsaken me. Verse 25. The Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You'll go out one way against them, but you'll flee seven ways before them. And you'll be an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Verse 32, 
Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people, while your eyes look on and yearn for them continually, but there will be nothing you can do. Verse 37, you shall become a horror and a proverb and a taunt among all the people where the Lord drives you. But again, that's contingent upon their disobedience. If you do not keep the commands, this is what's going to happen. So we find in the 44th Psalm, this unexpected passage of God's rejection. So in the first, first stanza, we know you've given the victory to our fathers. We have confidence in you. We appeal to you to give us the victory just as you've given them. But you rejected us. You, you don't go with our armies. You cause us to turn back from the adversary. And so what we might expect next is a confession of sin. Oh, I know why you did that. It's because we've sinned. But that's, that's not what we find. Look at verse 17. All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you. And we have not dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back. Our steps have not de deviated from your way. Yet you've crushed us in a place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. And that's, that's almost shocking, isn't it? <laughs> That this, this terrible situation has arisen, but we haven't been unfaithful. We haven't turned away from you. The author maintains the faithfulness of the people. His question in verse 21 is, uh, implies they're innocent. Uh, if we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? He knows the secrets of the heart. And that implies, again, their innocence. We, we haven't done this. God would know all about it if we had, but we haven't done these things. They had not sinned, even in the secrets of their heart, or violated even the first commandment. We haven't forgotten the name of our God. We haven't turned to strange gods. That's the first commandment. We haven't done any of that. And yet here we are, humiliated before our enemies. And so the author asks, why? This takes us down into the next stanza. Verse 24, for example, why, why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? Verse 23, arouse yourself. Why, why, why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake, do not reject us forever. And so the author asks, why? Why, why, have you, why are you hiding your face? To hide the face suggests that God has intentionally turned His attention away from the plight of His people. We're in trouble here. We've been defeated. We appeal to you. We get no answer. It's like you're hiding your face from us. It's like you're intentionally turning your attention away from us, and you're ignoring us. Why, why are you doing that? He asks them there in verse 23, Why, why do you sleep? Are, are you asleep? <laughs> you know means to be completely unresponsive to their situation. If you're asleep, and especially in a deep sleep, I mean, shake up, shake them, you know, somebody that's asleep and yell at them to wake up. And if it's a deep sleep, they, they don't hear it at all. They're completely unresponsive. God, why, why are you asleep? And the repetition of why emphasizes their total lack of understanding. We completely, we have no idea why this is going on. Why would God do this? Well, 
very similar to another individual in the Bible. You might have already thought about Job's situation. Very similar, isn't it, in lots of ways. In the seventh chapter of the book of Job, in verse 20, Job says, Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target, so that I am a burden to myself? Have, have I done anything to deserve this? Well, you, it's like you're, you've made me your target and you're, you're shooting at me. Well, why? I don't understand it. And then Job chapter 10 and verse 2, I will say to, to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend with me. Again, this question, why? Chapter 13 and verse 24 of the book of Job, very similar. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? You know, those are strong words, aren't they? It's as if you're treating me as if I were your enemy. Why? I don't understand why you're doing that. Well, as you go down to the fifth stanza in the 44th Psalm, you'll find the author appealing to God to respond. Let's just read through it, beginning in verse 20. We've already noted a few of these statements, but we'll read it through it from beginning to end. Beginning verse 20. Now, if we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For He knows the secrets of the heart. But for your sake we are killed all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake! Do not reject us forever. Why, why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our, our soul has sunk down into the dust, and our body cleaves to the earth. Rise up. Be our help. Redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. He says here in this particular passage that they are being killed like sheep being slaughtered. They're being crushed in the place of jackals. Perhaps the idea is we're being crushed by our enemies in the same way a jackal would crush in its teeth its prey. Something like that, perhaps. We're covered with the shadow of death. They're super discouraged, aren't they? Verse 25, our soul has sunk down into the dust. Very discouraged. It appears that God has forgotten about them, that He's asleep even rejected them. You see in verse 23, do not reject us forever. But an interesting thing happens here in the last stanza. In spite of all this, the psalmist turns to God. <laughs> now that, that, that's another twist in the psalm. I mean, would you turn to somebody for help that you think is ignoring you or has rejected you or is falling asleep on you? I mean, is that who you would turn to? I don't know, but that's who he turns to. He turns to God. He knows that God is the only answer for them and that God is their only source of strength. Well, he's already said it in the very beginning of the psalm. It's not by our strength. It's not by our might. It's by your strength. It's by your arm. It's by your might. And in spite of all these very difficult circumstances, he still goes back to God. God is our hope. God is the answer. God is the strength. There's nowhere else for us to go. It reminded me, of course, of the statement of Peter in John chapter 6 where disciples decide to leave and not follow the Lord anymore. And, and he turns to Peter and he says, Y'all want to go too? Well, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. That's the sentiment of the psalmist. 
Where else can I go? I don't really understand what's going on, but God is the source of life. God is the source of redemption. And so he appeals to God to rise up and to save him. Well, that's the end of the psalm. You kind of wonder what happens, don't you? <laughs> it, there's not a real clear resolution uh, provided for us in the psalm. Does God respond to the prayer and, and, and help? Does he relieve the situation immediately? Or, or does it continue for a while? How, how long? We're not given the answer to those kinds of questions here, and so I'm not going to speculate about them. But there are legitimate observations to make, and so let's make some of them. Are you ever perplexed in the midst of, of hardship? You know, human beings suffer terribly, including Christians. Sometimes Christians suffer terribly. Suffering can take different forms, of course. There's painful, prolonged disease. There are some diseases that produce some devastating effects. And I know what our reaction is sometimes when we hear, did you hear that brother and so-and-so has this condition? It's just like, oh no, oh no. Now with some, some uh, diseases, there's hope for cure and treatment and so forth, but, but some very painful, prolonged conditions. There's cruel bodily injury, paralysis, amputation, loss of bodily function. Sometimes children are affected by these things, and we think that's, that's totally unfair. That's, that's just unfair. There's emotional or psychological trauma. There's financial disaster. All kinds of suffering in this world. And moments of perplexity must come to most people. Why is God allowing this when I've tried to do what's right? I've tried to be faithful. Why is He not helping me? I've asked Him to help, but things are not any better. I don't understand it. What's going on here? You ever had thoughts like these? If so, you're, you're not alone, are you? They've been asked for hundreds, thousands of years. And so, David, who is the author of about half the Psalms, lived about 1000 BC. So if this is somewhere around that general time, this Psalm is 3000 years old, and they're asking these questions then. So if you ask these questions, you don't, don't feel alone. They've been asked for a long, long time by lots of people. Are thinking about God's promises or God's covenant, sometimes it's so simplistic, it's inaccurate. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1, we referred to Deuteronomy chapter 28 a little bit earlier. But in chapter 28 and verse 1, the first part of that chapter says, If you do obey me, all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord. Blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the country, and on and on and on. And so our view is, hey, I do what's right, I'm going to get all the blessings. And so our view of God and the promise and the covenant is so overly simplistic sometimes, it's, well, it's just, it's just not accurate. And of course, that can lead to problems, can it? Well, I thought if I did watch right, God was going to protect me from, from anything bad. And so, well, then maybe there's not a God. Maybe I shouldn't serve God. And so that inaccurate view can lead to very serious problems. We can become angry or frustrated with God or turn away from Him altogether. And so we need to deepen our understanding of what it means to be in a covenant relationship with God and what these promises of blessing 
mean to us. God doesn't promise to insulate us from bad things in life. He just doesn't. That, that's not the promise. If you do my will, I'll never let anything bad happen to you. Well, we know better than that, don't we? <laughs> we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that's been affected by sin. We have a physical body that's been affected by sin. And so, and so really we know from just personal observation and experience that bad things ha happen to us. And, and so that should not, that shouldn't startle us. Or that, that shouldn't shock us especially should not shock us to the point that we begin to question God's love for us or His loyalty to us or uh, the fact that He's going to bless us. The promise of life without pain is fulfilled in the next life. It's not fulfilled in this life. The promise of life without pain, without disaster, without disappointment, that, that's the next life, not this life. God does, God, what God does promise is to be with us. As long as we're in the book of Psalms, we might as well think about the statement made in the 23rd Psalm. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you're with me. You're with me. Even as I pass through that shadow of death, I know that you're with me. Now that's what God does promise. He doesn't promise to insulate us from all bad things, but He does promise to be with us as we pass through those bad things. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen, for the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And we've got another house, we've got another building, we've got another body. That's not in this life, it's not made of flesh and blood, it's a spiritual body. That's where the promise of life without pain will be fulfilled. And so don't despair if bad things happen, and they will. Don't despair. God is with us. He will help us endure. Keep your eye on the ultimate prize and be faithful. Hardship can work to the glory of God. The psalmist says at the end of the psalm, uh, the 44th psalm, the 26th verse, Redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. For the sake of your loving kind. Well, we're going to get to that passage in a minute. What I really wanted to see, uh, wanted you to see, is verse 22. For your sake, we are killed all day long and are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And so, this hardship somehow is for your sake. And so, sometimes hardship can be to the glory of God. For your sake, we are killed all the day long. That's quoted, you might have recognized that, quoted in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. Let's just go over there uh, for a second. I want to highlight a, a passage or two. So, uh, Romans 8, beginning in verse 35. Who'll separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Here, here it's quoted in connection with the, the persecution of Christians. And, and maybe we can see how 
The persecution of Christians, maybe the martyrdom of Christians, works to the glory of God. You see, it's for your cause, according to your purpose. It's to enhance your interest in the world that we're giving our lives. But famine is not persecution. And, and, and he, says, he refers to that in verse 35. Will, will tribulation or distress or persecution or, or famine? Distress is not necessarily being persecuted for the faith. And even those things are reflected there in verse 36. For your sake we're being put to death all, all day long. Suffering for God's sake is not just limited to persecution. Famine or distress cause suffering, and yet that can work to God's glory. So how can we make sure that our difficulties work to God's glory? Well, we can make it a point to give God the credit, the glory, as He sustains us through trial. We can make it a point to give God the glory as we endure the trial. Now you remember 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and Paul's thorn in the flesh and said, you know, I appealed to the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he says, my grace is sufficient for you. And, and Paul says, that's, that's perfectly fine with me. I'm, I'm satisfied with that answer. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. And so we can make it a point to say, to God be the glory. Yes, I'm suffering, going through this difficulty, but God is helping me cope. God is my strength. God is my might. And we can pray that our hardship and the way we manage it will bring others to glorify God themselves. Matthew chapter 5. Let your light shine. When are we going to let our light shine more brightly than when we're suffering? In, in these kind of difficulties. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. You don't hide your light under a bushel and so forth. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. And so as we pass through difficult times, whatever, whatever form they take, shine that light. Let your light shine. Let God's light shine through you so that others can see that and bring glory to God. And so instead of becoming angry with God for letting this happen, determined to glorify God as we endure it. God is the answer for, for us. He's, he's the source of our help. As we saw, the psalmist lays a great deal of responsibility for their situation at God's feet. You did this to us. Yet he turns to God for help. A lot of people become angry with God or blame Him when difficulties come. Some reject Him altogether. Sort of a childish response in a way, isn't it? Well, I'm mad at God because He didn't treat me the way I thought He should. You know? Sort of a, almost a childish response. So I tell you what, I'm just not going to serve Him anymore. Well, the psalmist doesn't think this way. He turns to God for help. There's some humility in this, an acknowledgement that, you know, God might just have a way that He's working things out in the world that I know nothing about. I'm going to yield to His will and to His way. Makes an allowance for that without petulance, without this pouting or foot stomping. 
Again, Peter summarizes the response in John chapter 6 and verse 68 when Jesus, after some disciples left him and didn't follow him anymore, Jesus asked, are, are you going away to, to whom shall we go? You, you have the words of eternal life. So although God may operate within this world in ways that we don't understand, He is still our source of strength and help and turn to Him for those things not away from Him. Job says, we looked at Job a moment ago, looked at some pretty strong statements, but here's another statement we need to consider if we're going to really think about Job in anything like entirety. Job 13, 15, Though He slay me, I will hope in Him. Though He slays me, <laughs> I'm still going to hope in Him. When we suffer hardship, and we will, do not turn against God, turn to God. And the last point we're going to make is this. The help God gives is for the sake of His loving kindness. That's the point that, it, that the author there in the 44th Psalm says right at the end, Redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. This word loving kindness is a word we talk about. It's a very common word in the Old Testament. It's really a very important word. Translated loving kindness in the American Standard Bible. I don't know that that's a great translation, really, is it? We, we don't use that word often enough for it to have a whole lot of meaning for us. Other versions say is mercy, steadfast love, unfailing love. Some versions say kindness. It's a predominant characteristic of God. When God describes Himself to Moses, He says that, I am abounding in loving kindness. I've just got this particular quality in an immeasurable quantity. Abounding in loving kindness. So it's abundant. It's far-reaching. Loving kindness is great to the heavens. The 57th Psalm in verse 11, the 33rd Psalm in verse 5, the earth is full of it and it's everlasting. The 100th Psalm, verse 5, His loving kindness endures forever. The idea here seems to be that God's help, His redemption, His salvation, His deliverance is consistent with and highlights His loyal love. The fact that God is with me and God can deliver me and God saves me is for the sake of His loyal love. It just illustrates, demonstrates, manifests in a very powerful way God's loyal love. The impressive thing, the impressive thing is that the psalm's concern is not his own well-being, is it? So it's not his own well-being or that of the nation, but what his well-being implies about God's good character. It's all God's glory. And so here he is in hardship, and he says, redeem us, not, not so that we can get out of the hardship. <laughs> redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. Now that takes a degree of understanding and spiritual maturity that might be still a goal for, for us. But it's a, a worthy goal to set that we can in every circumstance in life say, I'm calling upon you to help for the sake of your name for the sake of your character, for the sake of your loving kindness. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, whatever you do in word, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We want to strive to make that our purpose in life. 
Well, all of us are going to go through hardship at times. Some people turn away from God when this happens. We, look, we, we, we can't do that. We just can't do that. Even when we suffer, even when we're perplexed about it, God is the answer. He's the source of our strength, the strength that we need to pass through the ordeal. And so let's not abandon Him. He hasn't abandoned us. Let's not abandon Him, but rely on Him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you at this time. We acknowledge, Father, your, your greatness, your power, your wisdom, your majesty. So far beyond us, God, we will never understand, never understand you in all your depth. Father, we understand that you act in ways that might perplex us at times. And yet, Father, we pray that we will have enough spiritual maturity and enough spiritual understanding that we won't become frustrated or angry or turn away from you or rail against you, but we will continue to lean on you, that we will continue to depend on you, that we will continue to appeal to you, to come to our aid, to rise up and redeem us. Father, we stand in awe of you each and every day. We're thankful, Father, to be your children. And Father, we look forward to the life eternal where there is no sorrow or pain or hardship like we've been talking about. None of those things will exist for us anymore, but simply the glory that comes from being in your presence. Help us, Father, to live each day so that that, so that, that destiny might be ours through your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.